Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I have a Garmin Nuvi GPS. I've had it for a while, and the reason I've had it for a while is it actually replaced one that broke. And when they replaced it, the one that I had wasn't in production anymore, so they gave me a new updated one. Now, the good thing about this updated one is that it can be updated. So uh, once every other month or so, I plug it into the computer, and it updates all my maps, and, and it tells me where I'm supposed to go. I love that little Garmin Nuvi uh, GPS. It, I was uh, on a recent trip down and back to Oklahoma City and was able to, to use it in a way that is, um, is really productive. And that is it can zoom in to like 400 yards and it can zoom out to see like the universe. Uh, you can see the other side of Pluto when this thing backs up. It's, you can see the whole country. What I like about that little GPS is that if I dial it all the way down to that quarter mile radius, then I can see every turn, every road, everything I need to do up close, personal. It shows me everything. But when I was driving back from Oklahoma City, I wanted to know just kind of where I was relative from Oklahoma City to Kansas City, and so I kept pushing zoom out, zoom out, zoom out until I saw both cities, and I knew exactly where I was in proportion to both. It's a really helpful feature to know the up-close and personal view and also the macro view. Now, I was thinking about that GPS and thinking it's such a, such a really good illustration for how we need to look at the Scriptures, how also Paul and the Holy Spirit maps out our Christian faith. All the way dialed down, not just to 400 yards, but to exactly what we're supposed to do in the moment of temptation. And, and then also backing way up and saying, Here, here's where we're going and here's where you are. Romans 7 is one of those chapters, though, where the zoom feature goes in and out, in and out, in and out. Here's the next immediate decision you need to know about. Here's also where you stand in reference to your entire Christian faith. Romans 7 is critical, important real estate in the argument of Paul as he begins building from chapter 1 to chapter 16. He's like a lawyer developing a brief. It's an argument. He's making both an opening statement and a closing statement in the same way in the book of Romans. Chapter 7 is almost in the middle. When we finish chapter 8, we'll have finished half the book. But chapter 7 is, is both a transition it, it, it summarizes what he said in chapter 6 and previous, and it's also an introduction into what happens in chapter 8, that great and glorious chapter on living by faith in the Spirit. Chapter 7 is one of my, I can't say favorite chapters. It's one of the favorite chapters I have that gives me an insight into the, the up-close and the high-perspective view of my own walk with Christ. Chapter 7, Paul gives a personal testimony. He uses the first person. He actually talks about himself. It's a unique chapter. And I went to seminary, so I know this. Chapter 7 is after chapter 6. And it's right before chapter 8. You must know Greek, right? Right before chapter 8. And it sits there as a strategic piece of the puzzle that Paul is putting together for us. 
You know the, 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 the flow of Romans, but we have to get a running start. Chapter 1, he opens up by saying the gospel is something that is, that is relevant to everyone for everyone's sin. It's, it's the power of God for salvation to Jews, to Greeks, to everyone who will believe. Then he goes into the last part of chapter 1 and says everyone is condemned. Now by everyone, he's specifically targeting Gentiles. Everyone's in trouble before God. There's none righteous who can be, be, be able to stand before God. Look at the list at the end of Romans chapter 1 and you see that not only are the Gentiles condemned by God, but they're also condemned because they give hearty approval to other people who are sinning. Then he turns in chapter 2 and says, Now, lest you as a Jew think that you're somehow exempt, let me show you how even though you possess the very revelation of God, the law of God, you've actually used that as a criteria for judging others and not your own heart. And so in chapter two, he says, actually you also, Jew, are condemned because even though you have the law, you don't live the law. And even when you have the law and try to live the law, you place so much weight on the law that you think if I obey God in the different nuances of the law, then I can actually please God and God will give me a high five and I can go to heaven. Then in chapter three, he feels the tension because he says, well, who's worse off, the, the Jew because he has the law and doesn't obey it or the Gentile because he fully follows all the pleasures of his life? He says, actually, you're all in trouble. There's none righteous, what is it? Not even one. Wages of sin is death. There's no one who can escape God's watchful eye. And then the last half of chapter three, he begins the great exposition on the doctrine of justification where he says it's not even about working your way into heaven. No one can ever do that. There's none who's righteous. Even your best efforts don't please God. And in an awesome, mysterious, inexplicable, almost unbelievable Statement, he says, a man is just before God, righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You say, how do I get Christ's righteousness? You believe that he died for your sin and rose from the dead. And then God declares you righteous. And remember, we talked about the difference between that and, and the Catholic notion of infusing us with righteous, righteousness. If we're infused with righteousness and our salvation is based on how good we do with that infused righteousness, we're all in trouble. It's a declaration. It's something he imputes. He just puts on our account. Then in chapter four, he, he says, well, I know what you're thinking, Jew, and Gentiles who are in the biblical know. You're thinking if God declares a man or a woman righteous just by believing what God has done in Christ, what about the Old Testament? So he takes the, the best, greatest example of justification by faith in the Old Testament, namely Abraham, and uses the whole chapter to say Abraham was justified by grace through faith. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, this is nothing new. This is how God has always saved. He's never saved anyone on the basis of them trying harder or being better. In chapter five, he theologizes and he says, let me tell you how this all worked. Adam gave us his sin because it was imputed to us as a sinful uh, race. Christ gives us his righteousness imputed to us by faith. We can do anything about being imputed with sin. We just were born that way, but we can do something about gaining righteousness. What is that? We believe in Christ and the gospel. Then in chapter six, he begins the practical section. And it's almost as if after five chapters, we talked about this, that 
wow, that's all I have to do is believe. All I have to do is, is understand and, and, and I'm saved. I don't have to do anything. That's awesome. In fact, I'll have all of my sin and my faith and that would be great because grace is so strong. Paul has told me how gracious God is. And he says, actually, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then he climaxes this whole argument over in um, verses, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And he says, don't present your members. Don't present your body as instruments of righteousness. That's mind and body. Don't give yourself to sin. Give yourself to God. That's, that sounds simple enough, right? You would be left then after the end of chapter six thinking and saying, now, he saved me because of grace. Grace covers my sin, past, present, and future. Paul just told me now I have to turn from my sin that I've been saved from and actually not present myself as an opportunity for, for my lust to sin. But I got a problem. I would really like to obey God and live righteously. And yet, I don't always, all the time. And when I want to, I don't do it to the extent that I want to. In fact, there are things that I find myself doing, I scratch my head and say, how in the world can I even be saved doing that? Paul understands that. He understands our struggle. Chapter seven is strategically fit. After chapter six, don't let sin reign in your, in your life. And in chapter eight, here's how to live in the spirit. So what about sin, Paul? What, what about the sin that I keep wrestling with? Nowhere else in Paul's writings and certainly nowhere else in, in the ancient world or in ancient literature that we have uh, access to is there such a penetrating, graphic depiction and description of the human's wrestling match with sin, especially from the perspective of a Christian. Chapter six, don't do it. Chapter seven, Here's what happens and why you do it when you don't want to do it. So as I said with that GPS, it, chapter seven looks at the specific and the big, big picture, specific and zooming in and out on our life. So what I want to do is just kind of break the whole chapter down, this theological review of Romans chapter seven. First thing we're going to look at is a believer experiences radical freedom from the law. This is the first thing Paul says. We're gonna look at the whole chapter. We've already exposited it verse by verse. Now we're gonna look at the, the macro level. We're zooming way out. A believer experiences radical freedom from the law. Paul, as I said, just finished discussing how being baptized into Christ causes us to be dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. We're not to present our bodies or our minds as instruments of, uh, to unrighteousness or to unholiness. And again, he's got Jewish and Christian, Jewish and Gentile, rather, believers in the church at Rome. And he has to ad address this issue of the law. They're still saying, and, and if you have an Old Testament, you should still be asking, yeah, but what about all this stuff, these regulations, these requirements of God? Was God just doing that for show? Why do we have all that? What do I do with that? What do I do with the first 39 books of the, of the Bible? He carries actually the the illustration in these first few verses of marriage. These Jewish believers had become dead to the law that they could be joined to Christ. 
now he shows them an illustration. And the illustration is, is one that's a little bit unexpected, but it's powerful, and it's that of marriage. He addresses the issue of a believer and the law by this analogy of a husband and a wife. Verse one. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that's the Jews, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Sounds right. For the married woman, now he launches into an analogy, an illustration. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. She can remarry. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. This is not Mosaic law. This is the law that says you can't uh, commit adultery. You can't have another uh, uh, person in your life besides your spouse. She is free from law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, there's practical implications to this. God clearly says that widows and widowers are free to remarry. But that's just an illustration. Therefore, verse four, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. That was our first husband, our first wife, our first spouse. Through the body of Christ, just as Jesus died for us in our place, that also represented the death that we would experience with our spouse, which was the law of God as the regulating principle in our life. So that you might be joined to another, to him, this is Jesus, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He says, we're dead to the law. That was our old spouse. Now we're alive to Christ. That's our new spiritual spouse. For while we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law We're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. You say, what is that talking about? Well, he's gonna come back to that here in our second observation and explain fully what that means. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we were, we serve rather in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Verse six is really important. He's saying the issue, the regulating principle in our life is the spirit of God. It's not the letter of the law. Now, having said that, the law isn't bad, as we'll see in a minute, because the conclusion could be, well, if that's the case, let's just throw out all the regulations and just live like we want to, which he combated in Romans 6, verses 1 to 11. So what do we have here? We have Paul saying that the collision that we have with our conscience as a believer has roots, if we go back, It has roots in being bound by God's regulations. For a Jew, that was a law. And we also know from Romans 2, 4 that every person who's ever born has the law of God written where? In his heart. There's there's the idea of right and wrong. This is such good news. This is such freeing news. Because Paul is saying, I know that you lived under this oppressive weight of your conscience that said you have to do enough to be saved. Try hard enough to please God. If you don't don't make the cut before God as other people might, then you're in trouble. This treadmill of performance, of behavior modification, of trying harder to do better so that God might notice us. He says, no, you're dead to that system. 
and you're alive to God because of the death of his son. Lest his Jewish readers think that he's implying that the law was sinful, though, Paul goes on to another part of his argument. As we continue to have a high-altitude survey of this, we see, secondly, that an unbeliever experiences a collision between law and sin. Remember, he, he's, going, he's focused, zooming in and zooming out. He zooms out and kind of back now and says, well, let's, let's look at that situation under which an unbeliever lives by their conscience as a Gentile and by the law as a Jew. An unbeliever experiences this collision between law and sin. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's a great question. If the law just, just condemned us, and showed us everything we did wrong. Is it a problem? Is the law sin? Is the problem in the law itself? And what is this conclusion about the first 39 books of your Bible, specifically the first five? On the contrary, may it never be. Then he gives us this really interesting insight that I hope you see when you read your Bibles. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He says, actually, the, the, laws, the best part of the law is not that it makes me right before God. The best part of the law is it makes me see how unright and unrighteous I am before God. Then he pulls out an illustration. This, a lot of commentaries wrestle over this. Is he just using this illustratively? Is he just using this universally? The, uh, the Coveting has internal and external components. It goes to the heart. It's the, it's the most heart-oriented of all Ten Commandments. I tend to think that Paul is being personal here. He's, he's telling us, this is an issue I had in my heart. I don't think he's just being generically illustrative. He's saying, I personally would not have known anything about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You, you, should, you should not want what belongs to someone else. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What is he saying here? He's saying that the law actually served to provoke my curiosity about my sin. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. And here's, here it is, verse 11. For sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What is he saying here? He's saying the prohibitions can easily be provokers. Tell a five-year-old not to do something and watch what they do. Just take this experiment. We talked about this. Go down to the, to the, uh, the children's, uh, uh, in fact, you should serve in the children's department uh, next hour and, and go into the five-year-olds. They're a curious group. And go to a closet and say, see this closet? You can't go in there. I don't even want you to touch the knob. Let's look everywhere else. But you can't go in this closet. No matter what you do, don't go in there. Do not touch this. But let's go over to the other part of the room and don't touch that. Where is every one of those kids' focus and attention going to reside? On the closet. 
Paul said, that's exactly the way the law functions. The, the, the thing that I should not do, I do. And by the way, that's why you gotta be careful even reading books on sanctification that are so graphic about their depiction and description of sin that it actually becomes a temptation. What's his conclusion? Is the law bad then? Because it, it actually provoked me to see and know and be tempted by the prohibition, well, verse 12. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not a bad law, it's a bad me. Therefore, that which is good became a cause of death for me. How that happened? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. He's saying, if you back the GPS up, if you look at what's happening in your soul, if you're an expert physician on your own internal workings of your heart, you'll see that the problem is not God telling us what's wrong with us. The problem is us. We talked a little bit about, about, a little bit about this. If a doctor tells you you have a condition that needs to be treated, don't punch him in the nose. He, he's just, he's serving you. Now, I know situations where physicians have, have um, unduly received frustration and anger because they were just telling someone, you have a problem that needs to be dealt with. It's the same illustration here. That's how the law functions. So he says, okay, here, here, here we go. As a believer, you're, you're, you're free from the law and now you're wed to Christ. By the way, as an unbeliever, the law just served to stir you up. And that's what you've been delivered from. So now we go, number three, to a believer again. A believer experiences a war with indwelling sin. Does sin go away when you become a Christian? Don't you wish the answer to that was yes? Don't you wish that we just were not only declared, but we were infused with righteousness and there was no longer sin to, de to deal with? Why then, if you are um, dead to your old spouse that regulated and ruled you, the law, you're married to Christ, we're commanded not to present our members, our minds, our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness to those tempting sins, why then do we still sin? Why does Paul actually have to say to us as believers, do not go on presenting yourself to sin? Why? If we have the Holy Spirit who resides within us, why then do we wrestle with and struggle with sin? Well, to further illustrate his point, Paul now uses himself to answer that question. He says, I'm gonna give you a personal testimony. Let me tell you about my own wrestling match with sin. Now, when you read down through these verses, it's, it's such an interesting depiction of the apostle because we've already seen that more than likely he struggled with coveting, right? He, he says, I, I've got my own sinful issues. But lest anyone think that Paul was super Christian, you know, he peels back his, his toga and he's got a big S on his chest, super Paul. He says, look, let me just tell you what this looks like in my own life. Let me look like, show you what it looks like with my mind that wants so desperately to obey Christ and my life that so often moves the other direction. Now, these verses have been 
widely uh, disagreed upon. Some people think that Paul's not talking about himself when he uses the first person, I, that he's, he's talking about the Jews. He's personifying the Jews in himself. Some people think that he's talking about himself as an unbeliever. And some people think that he's talking about just um, uh, the, the generic unbeliever who you would find on the street. There's a doctrine in bibliology, in the, the study of God's word, that's called the doctrine of perspicuity. It's, it's a big word. The, the reality is it means clarity. The doctrine of clarity. Perspicuity means God's clarity. Here's my, my wrestling match with, if we want to make Paul in this passage, be speaking as an unbeliever or as a Jew or, or as, as something other than a believer wrestling with sin, Paul was certainly unclear. If he wanted to depict himself as an unbeliever here, there's plenty of Greek language he could have accessed to have des- described and explained that. If he was trying to tell us I'm talking about myself in the past tense while I'm using a present tense. He was at best cryptic. I think the best way to take these verses is just at face value. He's talking about a believer's ongoing battle with indwelling residual sin. And so he dives in. For we know that the law is spiritual, it's of heavenly origin, but I am of flesh, Sold through bondage to sin. We've discovered over and over that when Paul uses the term flesh, he uses it in two ways. Sometimes just to talk about flesh as opposed to, to the spirit, flesh that will die. It's just, just the being human. But more often than not, and in this case, he's using the word flesh to talk about that dark part of us that wants to sin even though we've been saved. I'm sold into bondage to sin. Hang on. If Paul's talking about himself as a believer... And we found out in chapter six that he's no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Then how can he say I was sold into bondage to sin? Because he may be walking around as a free man, but he's got chains around his ankles, around his wrists, that he drags with him the rest of his life, even though they're not attached. And you and I do as well, don't we? For what I'm doing... I don't get it. I do not understand. Now, he's not saying, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. He's just saying, I don't, I can't believe that I'm doing this. It's hard for me to to imagine that I'm this knuckleheaded in response to God's grace. I don't understand. You know why? Because I'm practicing, I'm not practicing what I would like to do. That would have been enough. But he goes on to say, I'm actually doing the very thing I hate. We said there's two categories of sin, right? Omission and commission. Commission is one we usually think about. Commission is when we commit something against God's law. We do something that's explicitly stated as wrong. Omission is omitting something, not doing something that's right. Paul says, I've got them both covered. I've got issues on both sides of that equation. I can flip that coin and know the heads and the tails. I don't do what I wanna do. In fact, I do the very thing I don't want to do. Look at verse 15, though, at the end. I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Can I just ask you, just devotionally, when you see yourself doing the things that you don't want to do, do you go so far as to say, I actually hate this? I despise 
this part of my life. I hate the sin in my life. Or is it just casual? Oh, I'll ask forgiveness. Can't wait for communion and we'll sing some songs. I'll feel better and start over next week. Do you hate your sin? Can you identify with Paul where you have a healthy self-hatred with regard to your sin? Verse 16, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. The law is functioning. The fact that I have this wrestling match means the law is good. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's convicting. There should not be any such thing as a Christian who's not convicted about his sin. So, this has been an often misinterpreted verse. Now... No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Is he saying, well, I don't have to worry about this when I get to heaven. I can just say, God, you know, that wasn't me. Father, that wasn't me. That was the sin in me. Just if you had taken the sin away from me, I wouldn't have sinned. It's kind of your fault. Verse 18, he goes on. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. So which part of Paul is doing this bad thing if he says, I'm not the one doing it? He's talking about, we'll get to this in chapter 8, the heart of hearts, the eye that wants to follow God. I'm not doing that, but something is in me, not separate from me, in me that is doing that. Just to show you that he's not trying to get out of his uh, uh, culpability, verse, he follows verse 18 on the heels of verse 17. For I know that nothing good lives in, dwells in, abides in me, that is in my flesh. He's, saying, he's not saying I'm so pervasively sinful that there's no way I'll ever do anything good. He qualifies it. No, flesh is that unredeemed humanness. It's that yet to be glorified part of us. I love the end of verse 18. The willing, though, is present in me, but the doing of good is not. There's the battle. If you have that wrestling match, that struggle, where you just say the willing isn't there, but the doing isn't, and I wrestle with this, that's a good battle. And don't ever think that that battle will go away this side of glory. Watch your expectations. Be careful that you don't think, well, one day I'll get mature enough where I don't struggle with sin anymore. For the good that I want, he gets specific. I don't do it, verse 19. In fact, I practice the very evil that I do not want. He doesn't whitewash his sin. He doesn't say these, these, these problems. He says evil. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He says there's two, two constituent desires in me. One that wants to obey God and one that doesn't, and they are at war. I find then the principle, verse 21, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Do you, do you underline things in your Bible? That should be your testimony. I want to do good. I want to do what's right before God. But I find that evil is present in me. What is your self-assessment? This is building toward Paul's. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. That's to me what proves most that Paul is talking about himself as a believer. Unbelievers can't say that, verse 22, that they joyfully concur, agree with the law of God in the inner man, that desire to obey God, they want to do that and join with that desire. Unbelievers don't have that. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Now we find out that, that it's, and by body, he's not just talking about the physical. He's saying mind and body, all of my members. And here it is, verse 22, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I am in this absolute wrestling mesh. There is a tug of war rope in my heart between two desires. So, What's Paul's assessment of himself? What is super Paul, super Christian, the great theologian's assessment and conclusion of himself? Verse 24. Wretched, wicked, awful man that I am. And then he asks a question that's the most important question to ever be asked. He doesn't ask, what do I do? Look at the pronoun. He says, who Who will set me free from this flesh, this body of death, this propensity, this leaning into sin? Who will set me free from this? And then between verses 24 and 25, you just, you feel this deep breath just, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord When you're wrestling with your sin, do you get to that sentence? You get to that point? Does God himself and does the gospel have a rational component to your wrestling with sin? Can you stop and say, thanks be to God that I have been delivered from this, that I will not be held accountable for this? Even when I think of that, I won't be held accountable for this. God will have that sin held accountable. And where will where did that happen? At the cross. Then he summarizes. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. That's those godly desires that the Spirit of God puts in us. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Can I give you just a little preview into next week? Just a little one. If you're like me, if you're like most people I know, then you read this chapter and you say, well, I wonder if I wrestle enough. I wonder if, I, if my righteous desires are, 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 are evident enough. I wonder, I wonder if my, my evil desire actually trumps my righteous desire. I wonder, I wonder if I'm actually saved. You ever been there? I hope I don't lose all credibility. I've been there where I said, how could I possibly be a Christian when I have this stuff going on in my heart? Verse one, therefore, therefore connects the fact that, look at verse 25. I wanna serve the law of God with my mind. My flesh serves the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, I'll stop. We'll just, you can read it. It's, 
He answers the question. It's, I hope this isn't disrespectful, but the Holy Spirit's a genius. The, that it's almost, here, here's a struggle to me as an expositor. You almost need to preach the whole book every time you preach any part of it. But to preach the whole book is to look at all the constituent parts. We can't get Romans 7 separated from Romans 8. But do you feel the end of Romans 7? Have you felt the end of Romans 7 where you just feel, this is so bad, I must be condemned by God. I, I, I can't, I don't do enough. I, I, there, there's no way I can be saved. He says, hang on, tiger. There's no condemnation. And he doesn't say, there's no condemnation for those who aren't fighting hard enough. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right back to the gospel. Can I give you just a few takeaways from chapter seven? You can write these down or find one that you like. This is what, these are my takeaways from Romans seven. First, number one, there is a good function of the law. There's a good function of the law that must be understood. In other words, I want, to, I want to see and feel and know and experience the law of God. We can branch that out to say the revelation of God. I want to know that it convicts me. If God's word doesn't convict us, there's a problem. That's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to convince us of sin. Do we experience that function of the law in our hearts? Secondly, there is a war within a believer that must be fought. Paul says, it wages war in, our, in, my, in my soul, in the law of my mind. And do I recognize the war? Do I experience, do I feel, do I sense what Paul is doing here himself in Romans 7? I mean, do, do, I, do I feel the shrapnel? Do I, do I smell the gun smoke? Do I, do I feel the, the war that's happening in, or is it just, ah, oh, it's just passive? If you don't feel the battle, then you're not waging war. Thirdly, true self-awareness is traumatic. True self-awareness is traumatic. To really see ourselves as God sees us, which is to see the truth, is to, is to conclude, oh, wretched man that I am. We have drunk the Kool-Aid in our, in our culture of self-esteem. The Bible doesn't teach self-esteem. It teaches God-esteem. And when we see the great God of the universe loves and cares for us, we don't ask self-esteem questions anymore. We say, hallelujah, what a savior. Who would redeem a wretched man like me? So do you have a pretty negative view of yourself? When someone comes to confront you and they're only half right, do you have the ability to say, I mean, is your, is your knee jerk, that's not true? Or is your knee jerk, that's all you got? Oh, it's way worse than that. Let me tell you some more. Let me give you ammunition for your confrontation. It's way worse than you think. That's the right kind of self-assessment. You don't stay there, by the way. Romans 8.1 means something. We'll get there next week. And then number four, there must be a growing understanding of ourselves 
and the gospel that inform each other. A growing understanding of ourself and the gospel that inform each other. In other words, the more I see the blackness of my heart, the more I see the greatness of God and the greatness of Christ and the greatness of the cross, and I revel in that. But the more I look at that, the more I see how terribly black my heart is. They go hand in glove, they go together. So the question then of this whole section is, are you in the battle? And if you are, take, I love Piper's words, take heart embittered, embattled saint. If you feel the war, join us. Let's fight it together. If you don't sense that battle, I just want to beg you, consider whether or not you really have the Spirit of God who is in you because he cannot reside in you unless there's a collision with who we are. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. We're going to sing a song just to conclude this great section of Romans. Our prayer room is going to be open in a few minutes to my right. If you have questions about your heart and the gospel, whether you really understand it, believe it, or living it, please don't leave the room without settling that, asking and answering that question. Steve and Debbie Schulte will be up here. We'd be glad to talk with you, pray with you. Anything we can do, please let us serve you, but don't leave without understanding your place and standing before God. Lord, we know the battle. Give us the grace to wage effective and faithful fighting in it, knowing that we're fighting our own self. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truth that Christ has defeated sin, and in him are all the resources for life and godliness. Come to you because of Christ. Amen.